Glad you're here. Welcome to Spring Creek. You know, we're, we're beginning a brand new series today, The Elephant in the Room. We're going to do a message about rival God. I just have to tell you something really cool that just happened. So the first service was letting out, and I had a young man come to me, looked to be in maybe his late 20s, uh, possibly early 30s, and said, um, two years ago I came here, and I was addicted and really messed up, and I planned on leaving this service and killing myself. But you talked to me and you prayed over me, and now he's got two years sobriety, the picture of health. He went from here, he got involved in recovery, God did a miracle in his life. And I told him, I said, now you realize your story is going to be a part of somebody else's survival story. So anytime that we've been the recipient of something special from God, we need to remember that that is something that we want to pass on. So today I'm talking to you about the elephant in the room. This is a metaphor in our society for problems we don't want to face and we don't want to acknowledge. And it can be anything. I mean, somebody who's depressed and on antidepressants, but they continue to drink alcohol. And then they wonder why they're not getting better. That's the elephant in the room. This is not a mystery. You're drinking a depressant on top of antidepressants, that's not going to work. Somebody who's always broke, and nobody wants to talk about the steady stream of Amazon packages on the front door. You know, (laughs) again, it's the elephant in the room. It's what we don't want to talk about, but it's obvious. So we call these open secrets. Somebody who's not a part of the problem or not complicit in the problem, they can see what's going on. They're discerning enough to understand it. But the people that have the problem and are complicit just continue to ignore the elephant in the room. Now, of all the elephants that exist in the room, I don't think there's anyone that can even compare to the relationship we have with money. In this country, issues around money have destroyed more marriages than practically anything else. Money has this ability to to rob us of our peace of mind, to fill our hearts with anxiety, to control so much of our life, to make us actually feel enslaved. And yet when we face all of this fallout, many of us will still not acknowledge the fact that this comes back to the elephant in the room, the, the relationship and the behavior and the attitudes we have around money. There simply is no greater elephant that makes its presence known, impacts every aspect of our life, and has contributed more to our general misery than money. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. I came across a New York Times bestselling book written by a guy named Kabir Segal. And the book is called Coin. The subtitle is The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. At one point, based on his analysis, he draws this simple conclusion. He says, using economic logic, we desire more money because it helps us obtain resources necessary to survive. So pretty much, The whole book is predicated on the premise that more is better. That we're always looking for more because more will not just give us the things that we need to survive, but more is also associated with status and prestige and opportunity and things like that. So we want more money. Surprisingly, a little later in the book, he draws a very unusual conclusion. Listen to this. He writes, ironically, yearning for external success can leave one with less time, satisfaction, and serenity. Can you relate to that? The economic logic, the logic that says more is better, can yield suboptimal results. This prompts the question, is there another way? So what he does is he bases his whole book on this idea that more is better, but he says, yet this is a fundamentally flawed proposition. That the more we pursue it, 
in hopes of getting happiness, prestige, success, all of those things, that we find ourselves instead on this endless treadmill to nowhere. And he, he, and he, he, and he actually asked the question, is there another way? Is there an alternative to this mindless pursuit of more? Or how about this? This is a professor of international relations at George Washington University. His name is Amitai Etzioni. He said the obsession with acquisition has become the organizing principle of American life. People will do almost anything to acquire the means to consume, working slavish hours, behaving rapaciously in their business pursuits, and even bending the rules in order to maximize their earnings. They will also buy homes beyond their means and think nothing of running up credit card debt. It therefore seems safe to say that consumerism is, as much as anything else, responsible for the current economic mess. So the pursuit of more has left us in a real mess. Again, listen to his conclusion. Consumerism will not just magically disappear from its central place in our culture, it needs to be supplanted by something. Now the reason I wanted to start this message with these two very secular researchers talking about money is it seems that the world is beginning to wake up. That people are beginning to question the myth of more. That, that, that really is more leading to a more satisfied life because it seems to actually be producing suboptimal results, causing us to question, is there a better way? Is there an alternative way? And if consumerism is going to be replaced, it's got to be supplanted by something else. Something else better has to come in its place. Honestly, the path and the relationship that many of us have with money is an unsustainable path. Now, you should know Jesus had a lot to say about money. In fact, he went to, so far as to say that money is the rival god of this world. And we're going to look at that today. But first, we're going to look at the most misunderstood parable in the Bible because this is where Jesus teaches us these very principles. I'll begin with the story itself. This is in Luke 16, verses 1 through 8. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to him, what shall, or said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtor. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, he told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Okay, so picture this. The CEO is confronting his manager turned thief. What he's learned is he's been losing money hand over fist. Now, he doesn't know if the guy's incompetent or if he's embezzling, but all he knows is he can't keep this guy around because he's losing money. So the CEO confronts the manager, and the manager says nothing in his defense to the CEO, which in that culture is practically an admission of guilt. So the CEO is livid. He fires the guy. The manager's knees buckle. He's no longer a young man. He can't do manual labor. He knows that he just made his name mud throughout the community. How's he going to get another job? He doesn't know what to do. But he's got one thing on his, on his side. He's got time. He's got a limited window of opportunity because most people in the community, doesn't, they don't know he's been fired. And so what he does is he begins to call in his master's debtors. Now, he doesn't tell them he's been fired, nor does he tell him that the CEO has not authorized any of these cuts he's about to make. 
But he begins to cut people's bills, which, of course, makes him a hero in their eyes, right? As well as the CEO, because everybody's thinking, well, he's just this amazingly generous man to cut my bill like that. So what happens is the CEO shows up to collect the money before he shows his manager to the door, and then he sees what the guy has done. I mean, he's in a pickle. Because, you know, the people are already outside, and they're all yay, you know, yay for the CEO, yay for the CEO. They're so happy. They're so thrilled. He's wondering what that was all about. And now he figures out this guy has set him up royally. He's in a pickle. Because if he goes out and he tells the people, listen, I fired this guy, and, and none of these cuts are going to hold water legally, he's going to go from hero to zero like that. And I just wouldn't want to be in his shoes. What he knows is he's been played. His manager really knew, regardless of how he handles this situation right now, he knows his manager is in good graces with all of these farmers. So the CEO commends him for acting shrewdly. In essence, he says, you know, I got to hand it to you. You got me. You know how to look out for yourself and at the same time bind my hands so that I could do nothing about it. You're rotten to the core, but you know how to feather your nest for a smooth landing, right? Now, What's troubling about this story and what's bothered people for years when they read this story is the manager commends, or I'm sorry, the, the owner commends the manager for acting so shrewdly. And we think, well, why would you do that? You know, what he does is wrong. Well, this is where you, under, you need to understand Jesus' teaching style. There's two kinds of parables Jesus told. One kind is the go and do likewise parable, and the other is the how much more parable. This is not a go and do likewise parable. Jesus is not saying go out and do as this guy did. He's not commending that kind of behavior. This is a how much more parable. Now just so you know, in Luke's gospel, Luke likes to point out this kind of teaching. There's another example when, when the widow who goes to the unjust judge. She's got a case. She's righteous in her case. The guy doesn't want to give her the time of day. Remember this story? But she pesters and pesters and pesters till he finally gives in and gives her what she wants. The point of that story is not that you and I have to pester God. It's that how much more will the God who knows us and loves us as he does answer our prayers when we ask him what we need? It's a how much more story. There's another story like this in Luke where Jesus talks about the man who goes to his neighbor and needs bread in the middle of the night and the neighbor doesn't want to be disturbed. But finally gives in, gives his neighbor bread. That's a how much more story. It's, it's how much more is the God of heaven who knows what you need and is available to you 24-7. How much more will he meet your needs when they're genuine and you ask of him? So in this story, it's a how much more parable. Meaning that if this dishonest manager can ensure his future with shrewdness, how much more should Christ followers apply themselves in good ways to advance the kingdom of God? So after Jesus tells this story, the parable, he's going to draw some lessons. These are the lessons that Jesus draws from the parable. But first he says this, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of light. Jesus is acknowledging that broken people in a broken world do what they have to do to survive. And then he lamented the fact that his children, the children of light, often fail to act as creatively and in, as ingeniously as lost people do in advancing God's kingdom. So Jesus is basically, basically saying this. What would happen if my people were as committed to advancing my kingdom as people in the world are to building their temporal kingdom? You see, the tragedy in this story is that too many of us are like this manager. We expend way too much energy to ensure a certain standard of living 
while totally neglecting the kingdom that's to come. There's a guy, his name is Frederick Kautz. He was a one-time leader of the Salvation Army. I think he was eighth after the booths. And he said this, Christians are called upon to show the same perception, foresight, enterprise, and ingenuity in the service of God as people in the world show in their pursuit of success. Imagine if believers were as committed to what God wanted done in this world as athletes are to breaking records that are often broken before they die or as Steve Jobs was to building Apple, or as Warren Buffett was to amassing his fortune. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the comparison that Jesus is making. So there's four lessons he wants to draw out of this. The first one that he extrapolates from the story is the purpose of giving. Notice this conclusion. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use your money to make friends so that in eternity, they welcome you home. What does that mean, you know? Okay, think about this. This story is, is, is a metaphor for life and how we invest it. The manager loses his job, but because he did all these favors and cut everybody's bills, he knows that when he loses his job, all of them are going to welcome him. Hey, come stay with me. You're my friend. You've taken care of me. He's been smart, savvy, you know, shrewd in ensuring his future. In real life, Eventually, we lose everything when we die. You are guaranteed to lose 100% of the money that you have amassed when you die. And you are also guaranteed 100% to keep the rewards you lay up in heaven. There was a man, his name was Jim Elliott. He went to Ecuador as a missionary, wanted to reach the Aka Indians who slaughtered him, who killed him. He's a, he's a missionary martyr. But he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the question is, will you be welcomed into heaven by your friends? You know, they say you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. In scripture, we're told there's only two things that last forever. You know what they are? God's word and people. Those things last. God said my truth will last forever. People will last forever. Those are the only things that last forever. So the best use of money is to use the money to make sure God's word, God's truth is implanted in as many lives as possible, that we are literally changing the world through God's original program manual, through the word of God. Money's going to be lost. No one keeps money, but investments we make in people last forever because people last forever. It was Robert Morris who wrote this in his book, the only lasting things you'll encounter today are people, our friends, our family, the lost, the lowly. So when you and I invest in God's kingdom, what we're doing is the lives that are changed as a result of that. That young man that came to me this morning before the service, he's going to be a part of the welcoming committee for some of us. And he's going to be saying thank you. Because you gave to Spring Creek Church, my life was changed. My life was changed. I have a different life today. Thank you. He's a part of the welcoming committee. This is the same thing that Paul wrote to Timothy. Listen to this. As for the rich in this present age, they're to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the purpose of money is to invest it in the things that will outlast life. Here's the second lesson Jesus wants us to understand, the pattern for living. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. I mean, that's axiomatic. We understand that. That's, that's just true. It's a truism. We know that's true about life. Jesus is applying this to money. What he's saying is money's a really small issue loaded with huge implications. 
Make no mistake about it. There are far more important things than money in this world. Amen? Far more things important than money. But whether or not God trusts them to you depends on whether or not you pass the little test called money. You see, what that's telling us is God is watching our lives. Watching to see whose kingdom we're really committed to. If he can trust us with a little thing like money, he says, there's some really valuable things in this world that I will trust to your care. Randy Alcorn said it best. He said, the handling of money is a litmus test of our true character. It forms our biography. In a sense, how we relate to money and possessions is the story of our life. So get this. You probably heard the name Ron Blue. Ron Blue's a very um, famous Christian uh, financial planner. He's written a bunch of books. I've read all these books. But he makes this simple observation. There's only five things you can do with money. These are them. You can pay taxes. You can spend it. You can repay debt. You can save, invest it, or you can give it. Those are the five things I do with my money, five things you do with your money. Everybody in the world, we do five things with money. Those are the five things. You know what the difference is? The only difference is the order in which we do those things. That's the only difference. Everybody does the same thing with money, but the order makes all the difference because the order tells us our true value system. You know how most people in the world deal with those five things? I'll tell you. The first thing they do, they get their money and they spend it. That's just what most people do in the world. You know, I just read a statistic the other day. 11 days, the article was entitled 11 Days from Financial Ruin. The average American only has $400 of savings. If you had a bill that was more than $400 in savings, in 11 days, without a steady income, you'd be in deep financial weeds. 11 days, less than two weeks' time. We spend it. And then what we do after we spend it, uh, we, we, we repay debt, and then we pay taxes. If there's anything left over, we might save it. And if, and this is a really big if, after we've done the other four things, we might give something. That's their value system. That's how they relate to money. Me first, God last. That's the commitment to the kingdom of thingdom. The difference between people in the world and Christ followers, the one huge difference is God's kids give first. They give first. They give before they spend it. They give before they pay their bills, their debts, their taxes. They give before they invest. Why? Because it's not ours. We know that. It's God's. He deserves the best right off the top. We, we, we know that money's not going to last. Only people last. So we invest in the things that last for eternity. By the way, you know the answer to this question. I'm going to ask you. In heaven, what are the streets made out of? Gold, right? Have you ever thought about the significance of that? The significance of the streets being made of gold is that the people of God understand where wealth belongs, under our feet. To be under our feet means that we are in authority over it. We, it's not our God. It's not our, above us. We don't follow it. We don't serve it. It serves us. That's why it's under our feet. Because that's the lesson we learn in this world. It's our literal reality in the next. Another important principle Jesus taught us in this story is the principle of blessing. He said, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, what he says here is second nature to the believer, but radical as far as the world is concerned. What he says is, I'm the owner of it all. God owns it all. In other words, it might be in your pocket. Your name might be on the deed or the title. You might even have your name on account that you can switch money from this to that and all of that. But it belongs to God. It all belongs to God. So as a parent, my, my girls now are 28 and 26 years old. But when they were little, Thursday nights were daddy-daughter date night. 
And so we went to all their favorite places, Toys R Us, McDonald's, Target, the park, you know, just Thursday nights, I just took my daughters for a date. I thought that was really important to connect with them in that way. And so one night we were at McDonald's. I wasn't hungry. I bought them each a Happy Meal, and we sat down. They started to eat. Well, you know how tempting the smell of McDonald's french fries are. <laughs> and it kind of overpowered me. So I said, you know, can I have a french fry? And I began to reach for one of Carly's french fries. And with ninja-like skills, she said, no, daddy. <laughs> These are my french fries. You can't have any. And my first thought was, my kid has a bad attitude. <laughs> but that night, God taught me some things about giving I'll never forget. When I pulled back my hand, I thought three things. First, I thought, she doesn't know where those french fries came from. <laughs> I'm the french fry master. She has french fries because of me. It was my money that bought those french fries. I gave them to her. Second thing I thought, I have control over those french fries. If I want them, I can take them. Or I could go over to the counter, buy 50 bags of french fries and bury her in french fries. Third thing I thought, I don't have to have her french fries. I can go get my own french fries. And the moment I finished this little dialogue in my head, God said, that's exactly how I feel when you don't share your gifts I've given you. Every time you're stingy with the gifts I've given you, I think you don't know where those gifts came from. And I can't take them. I could give you more. But the bottom line truth is, I don't need it. I don't need your money. You see, what hurt me that day was not so much that I didn't get one of Carly's french fries. I mean, I hurt a little bit, but not a lot. But what hurt me was my daughter's attitude toward what I'd just given her. And that's what hurts the heart of God. When God blesses us, blesses us far more than we deserve. And I don't know of a person in this room who can't say those words. I've been blessed far more than I deserve. But I clutch those blessings to my chest and I say, no, Father, you can't have any. They're mine. That wounds the heart of God. He only asked for two French fries out of 20, one dollar out of 10. He's the owner of it all anyway. He doesn't have to have your money because it's already his. The reason he asked for one out of 10 is to remind us that 10 belong to him. All of it belongs to him. You know, a lot of us, we live in a house, we call it my house. You may rent it, you may own it, but you call it my house. Most likely, some years past, somebody else was calling it my house. And I can guarantee you sometime in the future, somebody else is going to call it my house. We are only temporary stewards of all the blessings God entrusts to us. They're not mine, they're his. The final principle Jesus leaves us with is this, the priority of loving. He says this, no one can serve, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, literally, the last word money is not what it's said in the Greek. It's an Aramaic word. It's the word mammon. That's what he says. You can't serve God and mammon. So Jesus first wants us to understand the mammon deity. Like I say, it's an Aramaic word. Jesus and his disciples did not speak Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek, but they spoke Aramaic. So this is an Aramaic word, mammon. It was actually a word that was used to describe the Syrian god of wealth. What's unusual about this is that Jesus gives mammon a name. Money, a name, mammon. It's a personal name. He's identifying it as more than just a neutral medium of exchange. Money is not something that is just this object that we use or don't use. Jesus says there's a spiritual reality here. I call this mammon 
because there is a God behind this. Jesus is the only person in history, as best we can tell, that ever named money in a personal way like this. The word mammon only occurs four times in the New Testament, every time out of Jesus' mouth, every time in a derogatory sense. What it means is that in which one trusts. What I'm telling you is that Jesus knew that money and God were in opposition. There's no doubt about this. Money can threaten our relationship with God because money seeks an autonomy apart from God. What it wants to do is work itself into the center of our life where it controls our will and not God. So money is a spiritual power with the ability to blind people. Consider this. When two people commit adultery, they know they're doing it. When people are under the control of mammon, they seldom know that they're under its control. Mammon is extremely deceptive. It wants to capture your heart and mind and control your decisions in such a way that you're oblivious to it. That's how insidious it is. To illustrate this, I have been a pastor for more than 40 years now. In 40 years' time, I have heard all kinds of confessions. The most common kind of confession I've heard is sexual infidelity. And I've heard hundreds, literally hundreds of confessions of sexual infidelity. And in 40 years of ministry, I've never heard somebody say, Pastor, I think I have a problem with greed. I think I may be materialistic. I think mammon may control my life. And yet we're mourned about mammon, about money, more than about sexual lust. What does that tell you? This is the elephant in the room. It's the sin we don't want to confess. No one wants to admit that money has more power in our lives than we care to admit. In a lot of ways, it's like alcoholism. Alcoholics are notorious for their denial of their alcoholism. They say, I don't have a drinking problem. I can quit whenever I want. Same thing with money. One of the surest signs that mammon has a grip in our life is that we're not even willing to acknowledge in the slightest that it might be influencing us. So the writer of Job says this, but watch out, or you may be seduced by wealth. Watch out. That's the phrase the Bible uses again and again as it relates to money. In other words, keep your eyes open, be diligent. This thing is after you. This is why we have a sacred approach to money. And why I say sacred, I say everybody wants to keep it personal and private. Some of you right now, truth be told, you're thinking, we got four weeks of this sermon series? I don't know. <laughs> you know, see you in late September. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you don't like what I have to say about money, stay away from Jesus. Jesus has more to say about money than any other subject. 88 times in Matthew, 54 times in Mark. These are small books. 90 times, 92 times in Luke. Jesus spoke more about money than he did the new birth. More, than, more about money than heaven and hell. More than about money than the second coming. Two-thirds of his parables are about money. Jesus knew to take money seriously. You and I had better too. And if I neglected this teaching, I'd be guilty of pastoral malpractice. I really would. I don't talk about it near as much as Jesus did. You know, there's 500 verses in the Bible about prayer. We just completed a prayer series. People loved it. I loved it. It was a great time talking about prayer. 500 verses related to faith. Faith is so central. Without faith, we can't please God. Without faith, we can't know Jesus. Faith is really important. There's 2,000 verses about money and possessions. God is saying, this is a serious matter. You better take it seriously. Secondly, he reminded us of singular devotion. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. He didn't say if you're smart enough or talented enough or spiritual enough, you might be able to do it. He said, it ain't happening. No way, no how that we can serve two masters. It can't be done. 
You can't love God and money at the same time. One will invariably take the back seat. No half and half here. Robert Morris said, Mammon is apparently a jealous God. And some of you recognize the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor who lost his life under Hitler's regime. Our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion. You know, Jesus told us that Satan is the power of this world, right? But have you ever noticed in the New Testament, he never says our choice in life comes down between God and Satan? When he said we have a choice, he said it's between God and mammon. Why is that? Because Satan knows if you make the choice between God and Satan, nobody's picking him. I mean, there's the lunatic fringe out here, right? I mean, there's some of those people that might pick him, but but comes down to God and Satan. People aren't making that choice, but it's God and money. That's a more difficult choice to make. You know, in the country of Ghana, there is no way to ask somebody, what is your religion? You know what the question has to be? Who do you serve? And that's what Jesus' question is. Who do you serve? Ultimately, not the words that come out of your mouth, but by your lifestyle, by what you do with your money and the order in which we do them, who do you serve? And then there's the messages of mammon. Mammon says take, God says give. Mammon says accumulate, God says share. Mammon is selfish, God is generous. Mammon wants to take God's place, and it does so by promising what only God can give. That's what Robert Morris said. Mammon tries to take God's place by promising us everything that only God can give. So Mammon says get, get, get. And God says give, give, give. We deal a fatal blow to mammon. We profane the God of mammon every time we give. Now, those of you who've been here for some time, you know we never have a stop-down moment in the church where we're playing soft music and an offering plate is passed in front of your face, right? You have no memory of that because in the 29 years since I started Spring Creek Church, we have never passed an offering plate. Never. Not one time. Not in the entire history of the church. But don't misunderstand. Offerings, our giving is central to our worship. The boxes may be in the back, they may be in the hallway, the giving kiosk out in the information center. But the moment I'm paid, I go right to the giving kiosk. God gets paid first. I give to him before I take care of bills, before I do anything else. Because that's my act of worship. That's what puts real substance when I say God's number one, that puts substance behind it. It says, God, you are number one. You're number one in every area of my life. There's no area of my life, my family, my marriage, my relationships with my friends, my money, my job, where you don't become number one. So when I give, I exalt the true God of heaven. So in light of all this, let me end with a confession. My wife and I, we met in college in Nashville, Tennessee, went to a little college called Welch College. I met her my freshman year. I was engaged to another girl. I like Brenda. I love talking to Brenda. She did not break us up, okay? My my girlfriend cheated on me. A long story, but anyway, her loss. Anyway, she 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 did. She 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 cheated on me. And but the next year, I knew I wanted to date Brenda. And we dated. We dated my sophomore, my junior year. Uh, we both were working part-time jobs. We were having to put ourselves through school, saving as much as we could, taking loans from time to time, trying to pay them off, but working part-time jobs. Now, as students, I know what it's like to live on ramen. I mean, it may not look like it now, but back then, I lived on ramen. I lived on macaroni and cheese. Once a week, we'd splurge. We'd put hot dogs in our macaroni and cheese, you know, get a little protein or whatever's in hot dogs. We'd put that in there, right? But here's the deal. When I met Brenda, I'm studying for the ministry. She's a young believer. She came to Christ as a teenager late in her life. And you know what she did? She tithed. 
part-time, she, she's part-time employee, Kastner Knotts in, in, in uh, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, if you know that store, it's kind of a high-end retail store. Uh, she worked there part-time, and she tithed off her little paycheck, even though she's paying her own way through school. And I didn't. And when we got married, after my junior year, so my senior year, I'm a married student, we're still both working part-time, and I talked her out of tithing. I said, we can't afford to do that. We only get hot dogs once a week, you know? God's not happy with that, you know? I mean, and, and, I, and, I, and all the rationalizations, you know, we give of our time, and we did. We serve Lord in other ways, and we did. But we weren't giving money. And for three years, the next three years, as, as, as uh, married students and going off into our very first mission, we never gave, never gave. 33 years ago, I moved here to Garland. I became aware I never had money. I just never had money. And I realized God's most incredible promises are all around money. That when I put him first, he takes care of our needs. And I said, Brenda, we just, we got to do this. And, of course, she was all on board because she'd been on board before we got married. You know, she'd been doing it. I was the problem. And we started giving. We started giving 10% of everything we made. And, you know, God honored that. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have much. You know, I still have most of that nothing left from back in those days. But I didn't have much, but we gave. And what we discovered is God takes care of us. When we, when we make him a priority, we become a priority. Now, many of you know, a year ago, I had open heart surgery. And many of you don't know that Humana insurance sucks, okay? I just, I, I just, I'm in God's house. I can't lie. My name is not Humana. It's Inhumana. That's what I call that insurance company. Because of all the things they tried to turn down and the things they did turn down in my surgery. They didn't want me to have anesthesia. I mean, this is like a $25,000 bill. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Bite on a belt? Cut away, doc. You know what I mean? It was incredible the things they were turning down. And we were just pummeled with bill after bill after bill. And uh, I, I just didn't know what we'd do. In fact, there's even someone in our church, one of our board members, who has a company that can audit your medical bills. And she said, they'll do this for you, Pastor Keith. I've asked them to do that for you. And they went through and they said, oh, yeah, this, this, this. These are all violations of your policy. They should have paid for this, this, and this. Wrote it all up. Wrote it all up with appeal. They, I mean, in a professional way that I could never do. Sent it off to the Texas Department of Insurance. They still sided with my insurance company. So I was on the hook for thousands of dollars. A month ago, we paid off the last bill. I was never late on a single payment. My credit is the best that you could have. I gave away more money last year to God than I've ever given away in my life. It's tempting when there are unexpected finances like that that come your way to say, you know, I got all this money going to God and that would put a real big dent in that. But if I gave that, I'm afraid I wouldn't have the help with this that I need. And because I continued to give, God just continued to provide. Never missed a payment, never a ding on my credit, I mean, it was just, it was amazing. So I learned, I learned as a young believer to move against my fear. My fear of not having enough. My fear that God would not provide. My fear that I had to provide for myself. You know, that's the world. That's the way the world lives, the myth of more. 
and even the world is waking up, there's got to be another way. And there is. And it's the way God talked about. Put him first. Now, some of you in this room, you're not able to tithe right now. You, you've got just so much tied up in bills and living beyond your means. But can I challenge you with just one thought? Put him first. Just put him first. Before you do anything, give him something. But put him first. Put money under your feet where it belongs. Don't serve it. Don't chase after it. Put wealth where it belongs under your authority. And if you will do that, I promise you, the promises of God are this. He takes care of his kids, and you'll never outgive God. God has things that are far more important than money, and he's given me those things in abundance. Like a young man that I had the privilege of praying for, who today knows his sobriety, and didn't walk out of this place and kill himself because he found that there's a God in heaven who loves him incredibly and was more powerful than that addiction. You are a part of that when you give. Thank God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time, for what you're doing in this place. Thank you for the work you've done in my heart. I know there are so many who struggle. I know there are so many who are even in bondage to this God of mammon. And it's easy because of the choices we make to get ourselves in a really bad spot. But Lord, you respond to the willingness of our heart when we say yes to you, the resources of heaven align behind us. So God, give somebody the courage to begin today to say, God, in very real and intangible ways, I'm going to put you first and trust you for good things in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.